Hello and welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. And in this episode, we are focusing on human rights because without them, there's no way in delivering global health programming. Well, our guest today is an example of how to push human rights to the very extreme and achieve amazing results. He is the co-chair of Outright International. He is a program manager at AVAC, a New York-based international organization that balances support for community organizations with the implementation of new HIV prevention and treatment technologies. He was the Champion of Change awardee by President Barack Obama in 2015. He's the co-founder of Global Black Pride. And for me, most of all, he's a board member of an organization very close to my heart, along with fellow shot-in-the-arm podster Panime Mane, Frontline Aids. Please join me in welcoming Michael Igodaro. Thank you so very much, Ben, for having me. I'm really glad to be here. It's like an honor and also like I feel a little bit starstruck <laughs> to be here with you because I've known you for a little for a long time. And, you know, I'm so very, very proud and pleasure to be here. Well, it's been a really incredible time for you these last few weeks. And we'll come on to the extraordinary things you've been doing in just a second. But to kick off, could I ask you a bit about your your upbringing and your education? Yeah, I grew up in a little city uh, called Benin City in Nigeria. It's one of the um, you know the royal families and the royal uh, 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 you know states or cities in Nigeria. And you know before the colonial British people came and almost destroyed it, but like you know we're still one of the only city in Nigeria that has city behind its name. So. A lot of states has just states, but Benin City, it's Benin City. So it's one of the only city that has Benin City, you know, city uh, behind the scenes. So I grew up in Benin City. I went to uh, kindergarten in Benin City uh, and went to primary school, uh, which is after kindergarten in Nigeria. Um, and I was in college, uh, my first year of college, primary school, actually, when I left my parents' home at the age of 14. And I dropped out of school uh, after that. So I think my education was somewhat, you know, cut short uh, as a teenager back in Benin City. And I um, I learned a lot from my friends and from core people, I would say, who taught me all of the things I know today. When did you discover uh, the fire inside you that, that, that surviving wasn't enough, that you needed, you wanted to change the world? When did that hit you? I mean, I think, you know, I wouldn't say um, fire inside of me. I would say, like you said, you know, we were trying to survive. And just like myself and my friends, living in the streets of Benin City as queer teens, all we wanted to do was, like, you know, live till the next day. Um, So we're trying to survive. And during that time, we thought, well, you know, we don't want people, you know, our friends and people to go through what we went through and what we're going through. So we said do more than just surviving and to see how we can stop, you know, young teens and young gay teens from living through the same thing that we went through. So, you know, we created little organizations, you know, on the streets and, you know, we said to fight back, you know, against the, 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 the oppressors that stood in our way. And and tell me to back off if I'm if I'm being too personal about no, this. No. But as a young teenager, you were living on the streets. You didn't have a home. 
No. So I left, uh, I left my parents' home and I lived on the streets, like lived under the bridge. I lived at friends' houses. I lived in the car. Um, so I traveled across Nigeria, you know, trying to meet gay people, queer people, um, who were welcoming. And I found that it wasn't just me. You know, there were a lot of gay teens at, at my age, uh, like age mates who were also out of their parents' home and going through the same thing. So we created a bond. Um, I became really close friends. And some of us are still, some of us that are still alive <laughs> are still very close friends till today. And uh, I, I suppose this begs another question that if you were homeless, and again, mm-hmm. please stop me if I'm going too far. Um, you're young, you're a teenager, you're gay, you're queer. How did your, how did your biological family cope with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny um, because when I discovered I was gay or that I liked men, um, it, I didn't know what it is. I didn't know what it is. I actually asked my teacher, who then told my parents <laughs> um, that you know I was like, oh, this you know I don't think I I would I want girls as my friends, but I actually think if I was going to go out on a prom date, I want to go with a boy. Um, and the teacher told my mom, and my mom, you know, who was also very. Uh, a strong Christian and also like, you know, religious person so, thought that was, you know, absorb and abomination. And how could you think about that? And why don't you want to be with girls? And, you know, even at that age, why should I even be with girls? You know, <laughs> like, you know, but it became an abomination. And my parents, you know, my dad was who had, you know, four wives at the time. Um, and, you know, thought it was abomination that I, you know, like boys. Um, and he thought, you know, it, I was disowned. And I think, you know, I, I think my mom, for, for a defense or in a defense, I would say, you know, she she was pressured and, you know, having to be, you know, um, uh, you know, one of the wives out of four with other kids and, you know, stepkids and having been pressured by family, by, you know, by society and by the church that she was a leader in. So t- thought she had to make the right decision. Like in, there was no way this child was hers and, you know, I must have come from somewhere. I don't know. Um, and she, they thought that she, it's best I leave the house. So I think I was, I was naive at that point. You know, maybe if I had stayed back and fought back, maybe I would have been able to stay back. But I think, you know, I just wanted to go live my life at that time. I thought like, oh my God, me leaving my parents home will open, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, a full house full of men that I could have fun with and be with. You know, I was naive. So I, I, I left. Um, and then a couple of days later, I wanted to come back home and I was no more accepted. So it was like, you know, reality setting that, oh, you're in the street now. And this is it, what your life looks like. I... So if we move on to uh, 2012, um, and, and, and this seems to me another case where, where the bigger, in this case, AIDS family doesn't take care of its own. But at the Washington AIDS conference in 2012, it's almost as if an, an, an explosion happens, as, as if a, a sort of a major life event happens there. Can you tell us what, the, what that was? Yeah, you know, I think it wasn't just for me. I think 2011 and 2012 was a big year, or a big time for African LGBT advocates um, and the community as a whole. I think we had just gone to Ikasa in Addis Ababa, uh, where we were thrown out of the hotel and, you know, we couldn't have a reception at an event. So it was just like popping up. With, it was a new breed of new advocates who were like saying no to a lot of things. And my friend from Namibia, Fidel, 
and you know, and and Jordan are you know, rest his soul. We all wanted to fight back. We thought like there was no way, you know, we have new British activists who could really, really change the face of the continent in terms of acceptance of, you know, LGBTQI people and also making sure like, you know, queer people have access to life-saving medication, like HIV medication. So we went to fight back. And I think I wrote an abstract, you know, after ICASA, you know, which was my one of my first international AIDS conferences, I wanted to go to DC to share more about my work. I think then uh, Jim Pickett... <laughs> At you know, East Chicago uh, was we with yeah. we were talking about you know uh, um, uh, microbicides, you know, and I think I had passion for like because I, I thought like you know if we had more prevention tools for gay men to have intersex, you know, more than just condoms, it would go a long way, you know, in in helping to prevent new HIV infections. So I did an abstract about my work and about why I went microbicide to you know to engage black gay men in, in Africa and Nigeria as well during the trials. And I came to present my work in DC. Um, I was, I think I was at the Amsher, uh, you know, uh, center in, in the, in the global village. And I met this guy from Washington post. He came over, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, Hey, I'm doing great. You know, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, Oh, I'm going to this gay party, uh, which is called, um, uh, fireplace in Washington, DC. Uh, it was my first ever anything gay club. So I was super excited. So I thought, oh, come on, you can meet us there. I thought it was like, you know, a gay guy, maybe he's eating on me or something. I wasn't sure. <laughs> I was like, okay, come over to to the club. We can hang out and you can meet my friends from from different parts of, of Africa because we, come, we came here for work. And then he came and later on, and we, we had drinks with my friends. He took pictures. We all took pictures. And I think... Right after the conference, I went to Jackson, Mississippi uh, for a holiday, which is like, why Jackson, Mississippi of all places? I <laughs> I had no idea, but I didn't know about Jackson then. So I went for, to Jackson for a couple of days. And that was where I was there when the article came out that, you know, gay men from Africa having fun in the street of Washington, D.C. And it spoke nothing about my work. It just focused on my sexuality and me having fun, which in its own, I, I wouldn't say anything bad about it, but I think, you know, it's over-sensationalized my, my sexuality and, you know, the fact that I'm African. And that, that in, on its own, is, is a taboo, given that, you know, I'm, I'm, I still have to go back to the country. It had my face on it. And this was 2012. And, you know, and Nigeria was still very hostile to LGBT people. And you know, knowing that, you know, we had a lot of work to do, like I said earlier on, um, we thought, you know, we had the real opportunity to make a change in the continent for, you know, the work around LGBT and HIV in the continent. So, like, I was desperate to go back because I had a project that I just got funded through PEPFAR. Um, I wanted to go back to that project. Um, and then, you know, I did go back, <laughs> uh, but it became a big deal when I got back to Abuja and I had to, like, you know, run for my safety. And after I was attacked, I had no choice but to come back to the States. Um, and I've been here since then. So you realize you need to leave Nigeria. Why did you pick the U.S.? I mean, I think I, I had the only visa that I had in my passport because I had just come back from the U.S. for a conference was the U.S. visa. Uh, so I literally had no choice. I think the choice was made for me even before <laughs> I could even think about it. Um, so I had no choice to decide where I wanted to go, if I wanted to leave. I think it was the choice was made for me by the people who attacked me, that, you know, this country is not good for you. We don't like people like you here. So I had no, I had no say 
in the decision uh, that was made for me to leave the country. Well, I mean, if you if you think of the the years in between, you, and this may be hard for you to hear, but you've become a hugely internationally respected figure in the global AIDS move in the global AIDS movement. And, and I want to come back and get your your views on where we go from here. Uh, I, I can't help reflecting that I am now uh, a U.S. citizen. I'm an immigrant, um, and yet I have no doubt my experience was nothing like yours. Um, was it difficult to choose the U.S.? And, and how easy has it been to call it home? I mean, I think it, it has in, in different ways. First of all, like, you know, thank you. I don't know if I am that important to the AIDS response. I think, you know, there are a lot of people, people like Yvette, for instance, who are, you know, icons. In, in the field and Emily Bass and Mitchell, all of my colleagues, I think at AVAC who, who, and others across the globe who are doing amazing things in this field. And I think, you know, they have changed the face of the, re- of, of the HIV response globally. So, but, but to your question, I, I mean, I don't know, it, it hasn't been easy in its own, but I think I feel privileged to be able to be here and to be able to, to, you know, do the same work I was doing in Nigeria, but also be in, in, in some, in some form, decision making tables that, you know, that helps shape the response in Africa and across the globe, especially for key populations. So I would say in that sense, yes, um, although it hasn't been easy, but, you know, I think in its own way, it has given me the opportunity to be in decision-making uh, meetings and also to hear to hear my view and help make the decisions that help shape the response. And grab that seat at the table so that the, uh, uh, the, the tradi- traditional doctors from universities aren't the ones all sitting there. Um, so one of the reasons for us talking now mm-hmm. is, uh, the HBO documentary, The Legend of the Underground. Um, it came out on HBO in the United States, I guess, last week. Um, Eric and I were gripped, uh, just sat there and couldn't take our eyes off. It's, it, it, it is immensely powerful. Uh, it's a hugely personal documentary and I, I urge everyone to watch it. Uh, it's not entertainment. It is harrowing, but it is but it is inspiring. Michael, why did you decide it was important to share your story? You know, I have always shared my story in different platforms, and I think you know I've you know I think in in eight twenty fourteen I was on the plenary speakers, and I think my 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 presentation was focused on my experience from being you know. Uh, a teenager and living home at a very young age and speaking about my experiences, why, you know, um, teenagers should be, should not be homeless and, you know, as gay teens. So I think at that point in my life, I wanted a bigger platform. I think, you know, like always, like 2012, I do feel like right now there is a need for our stories to go mainstream and for people to really see us for who we are and not just think, well, you know, this, Things are happening across the globe. There's no big deal. But like they have, it's, it's a big deal. And, you know, I think I wanted to make sure our stories are told in bigger platforms. People get to see us for who we really are and hear us. And I think f- for the first time in my life, I do feel like, you know, optimistic about what the future looks like for the continent and for quite Nigerians and non-conformists. I do look, I do feel a lot of positivity, you know, moving forward because I do s- see that, you know, now people see who we are 
and you know not from one perspective anymore but from our own perspective for what we want them to see um and i think you know it was hard for me to completely open up in that way and i think you know i was telling a friend of mine i'm like you know i i i i am not you know i don't hide about my hiv status if you ask me it's public but i think for the first time i got to be completely open on, on that platform and people were surprised people that knew me for years like mike i never knew hiv plus i'm like i've always been maybe you never care to ask but it's been public um but i think that for me i'm that told me something like people are going to use that to say well this guy you know he's here he's a very positive so you know i i, I want if I, it's not a dead sentence to be very positive right it's not a dead sentence that people you can be very positive and still live your life so i think you know yeah. that's just one part of the story but i i do feel like you know that is going to change things and i'm really really positive about it you you worked with two well-known directors uh, who created this, and um, I, I wondered were there any times when you you felt worried that they might not protect your life story, that you, you wouldn't have a say in the way in which the story was is, was being told. Neka and Giselle are very close friends of mine, <laughs> and I think before the documentary, uh, we you know we came to meet, we met. They met my roommate, Deji, at uh, a rest- an Ethiopian restaurant in Harlem. And they came over to the house to a party that I hosted in my apartment that had over 60 Nigerian queer people from, uh, you know, having fun in the party. So for the, for the director, Ineka, it was her first time of seeing queer people who were Nigerians in New York City. And she was just overwhelmed. And, you know, she and I got to meet, we spoke about my story, you know, about her story too. I think, you know, in a way, the directors also reflected on themselves. I think when, when, when you produce a film, it does, you try to portray your own life story through the documentary. So I think in, in a sense, they also show their life stories through the documentary as well. Like for instance, Ineka and, and her father are not in good terms because she's a lesbian and the, the, her father is Nigerian. And the other director, she's Jamaican, you know, and, and, you know, you know, the, the issues in Jamaica with queer people. Mm. So in a way, they reflected on their own conscious situations. And, you know, they were extremely cautious of the story and they took care of us. They made sure, you know, we were not exposing things we wouldn't want to say or, you know, you know, they, they, they took care of us. I think at some point, obviously, um, they pushed us, you know, you know, they pushed us in a good way. And I think they pushed us to to make sure people see what we want people to see, and you know to share our truth, to live our truth, to be who we are. And I don't think they forced us to do whatever we didn't want to do. So I'm really, really grateful to them and how they took care of our stories. Yeah, yeah. And and as a sort of a, a, a central backdrop to the documentary, Nigeria has in place the Same Sex Prohibition Act that was signed into into law by the former president. Good luck, Jonathan. Uh, what does this law involve? I mean, this, the story, I don't want to ruin the plot for everyone, but it does make it clear that uh, some of the legal machinations around the law are actually hard to prove. But but what is going on there? I mean, I think I remember in 2011 and 2010, you know, that was when the law was being discussed in Nigeria. And it took three, four years for the government to finally sign into law in 2014. And the law strictly right now, one of the simplest things of the law is that you and I cannot be having a conversation about gay people at all. You know, we'll, we'll be going to jail because we're gay and we're, we're having conversations 
about LGBT people. So we're going to just literally. But I think the, the reason why it's hard to prove is because, you know, you have to educate every single Nigerian about the law. And I think the government hasn't done a great job in educating people that this law is intact in, in and you can use it, you can catch people from it. So like, you know, either way, because again, like every other country, Nigeria is a very corrupt country. So the police people actually find a way. If if they do come to arrest you, you know, you can bribe your way out if you have the funds, right? And the law, the lawyer can come and spin it off in a way. So that's why we actually haven't seen anyone beyond the 57, you know, individuals who were arrested who went to court and went on trial. Beyond those people, we actually haven't seen anyone who has been persecuted based on the law. But what we've seen is that people are using the law as a way to extort queer people. Yeah. And it's a lot to help people and then pull the fear and, and stigma on them. But the law is actually hard to prove because not a lot of people are educated about what the law actually says. Yeah. I mean, it's the perfect tool to discriminate, isn't it? Um, and I guess what is particularly galling, um, especially for the UK in this so-called period of global Britain after Brexit, is that the anti-sodomy laws were actually created by the British mm -hmm. Empire at uh, the start of the 20th, pardon me, start of the 20th century. And so my question is, is, there, is that it? Or is there more than the legacy of British Empire that is creating the stigma and discrimination that the LGBTI community faces? I mean, I think, you know, it, it's... Um... It's not just in Nigeria, the British Empire sort of created this stigma and the laws that have been, you know, transformed in different ways right now by a lot of African governments is because like, you know, when they came, they brought out, they brought the Christianity and what the Bible says. And before they brought up the Christianity and what the Bible says, Africans always lived their way in certain ways. And being queer mm. was always part of our history. And when the Bible came, sort of transformed it to not just the Bible, but actually putting legislatures in place to, you know, to, 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 you know, to, to persecute people who go and guess what the Bible says. So I think right now it's not just about apologizing and say, hey, yeah, we came to your country and we messed up. So sorry for that. But no, you've actually lived a legacy that can never be erased. And it's, you know, you've lived a legacy unless you're going to take, take away the Bible and change what it says. Um, mm -hmm. So how are you going to do that? So it's it's like it's not just about like even in, in, I can, I come from Benin City and the British invaded uh, uh, my city um, and took away our prince. So so there there is a lot of things that the, the British Empire did back then that are still very much resonate today to people and people have taken those things and they are, they are part of our constitutions, our laws, and so it's 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 more than just apologizing. It's how you actually actively. You know, take responsibility for what you've done and make sure people who was living in those countries are safe as much as you can. So that, yeah. for, for instance, cutting funding, you know, from, the, from that DFA did, I think it's in, in some ways it's part of, you know, it's not the way you respond. So how do you assure that the people you've put in danger because of your laws, because of your history, you know, won't be able to get a response from NGOs who provide life-saving response to them because of the things you did? I think they, absolutely in my view, they're right. all linked. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And it's absolutely disgusting. I mean, I try not to be political on this show, but 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 two things really rankle and upset me. And the the the, the leaving of the European Union is one of them, but the other that cuts to the bone is the cavalier way the British government has just decimated overseas development aid. 
as if it's a nice thing to do. Well, no, it isn't. It's centuries of exploitation that need to be repaid. And, um, you know, it's not enough just to watch um, Downton Abbey and think everything was fine. There is a history throughout the 20th century of, of crass criminal behavior. We need to be brought account to it. Ah, well, there were moments in the uh, legend of the underground, and I hope you don't mind my asking this, no, where you actually did seem pretty uncomfortable yourself. And, and I think of a scene where you were meeting the elite. Um, feels very much like a Margaret Atwood speculative <laughs> novel, doesn't it? A group of richer, more politically connected folks you all met at someone's glamorous apartment. And, and there seemed to be an enmity between you and them. And it, it seemed very intimidating. Um, is that right? Or am I just reading too much into the drama? No, no, no. There, was, there, there, were, there were tensions that were real. And I think, you know, like I said in the film, like, you know, when you leave Nigeria as an advocate um, and you lived abroad for a long time, people tend to make you seem like you're not Nigerian enough to attend to the issues in the country, that you've lost your sense of belonging in, in the community. So you're, you've lost your street cred. So you are no more, you know, part of the community anymore because you live abroad. So I think what happened in that dinner was like real life because people that I've, that I've known for a long time, not, not, not a lot of them are my friends in the dinner. Like people, there are people that I know I admire from afar, but they're not like my close friends. Um, maybe one or two of them are. Um, but I think, you know, it, it was, you know, contentious in the, fa- in the fact that, you know, yeah, I am in Nigeria and people questioning, you know, how real am I? Why am I Nigerian? Why did I come back? You know, what am I doing here? It was absurd. And I'm like, what well, I was, you know, rightfully pissed at the situation. Um, I think a lot of clips that I didn't add to the, to the movie, but I think, you know, it, it was, you, you saw it right. And I, I think it also like the fact that these people were claimed elites, I, I just want to clarify, right? The film was right to classify people as elites, but those people are not elites by choice, right? So they are rightfully, they rightfully, you know, you know, fought hard to create a safe space in a very, very difficult country mm. that they are, that, that they live in for themselves. And they are non-conformists, they are queer, they are people who, they, they are, but they want to live their life safely. So they've, they found a way to find some resources that they fought really hard for to create a safe space for themselves. Yeah. So I think, you know, they, they are not elites, quote unquote, that they want to live separately from the, from the rights of the community. It's just that they live, they find a way to live safely. And some of them are still very connected to the community mm-hmm. and they still fight hard. They're activists, part of the community. There's a, there's another person that the documentary follows, uh, the social media sensation that is James Brown and the, the hashtag, um, uh, they didn't court me. Um, how is he doing? Uh, and, and, and can we get his Twitter handle? Because I encourage everyone to follow him on Twitter. James is amazing. Actually, I, just, I was just speaking to him. He's trying to apply to New York you know, Film Academy to come study in the US. Um, so hopefully get gets a scholarship to come do that. But he's amazing. And he's, he's a young, brilliant human being who was so much passion. And I think, you know, I, I love and admire James for who he is. And I take him for who he is, you know, and I think he, he, he wants to see a better future for himself, for his community. And he has a way of doing his own things. Um, that might not be the conventional way to do, to be an activist, but that's his own way. And, and I really respect him and, and admire him for that. Um, his Twitter handle is 
WF, which is what famous underscore James Brown. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, Brilliant. He's amazing. So he's, we'll, he's we'll doing include okay. that. Yeah. yeah we'll, yeah. we'll include that in the notes and a, a shot in the arm will definitely follow him. But yeah, I mean, uh, along with you, a real star that was, was uh, what a pleasant person to meet. Y- you said in a recent Vogue interview, and yes, even I have been known to read Vogue, um, but you said, uh, we are oppressed, but we are beyond that. And, and in many ways, I think that goes to the heart of the documentary. W- what does acknowledging that you're a bit, you're oppressed, but you're going beyond that. What does it mean in action for you, Michael? I mean, I think Nigeria, Nigerians generally, we are people who have a lot going against us, right? You know, from corruption to bad government and, you know, road, and then we still find a way to be, you know, some of the happiest people in the world. And we have a film industry, which is like the second largest in the globe, Nollywood. And so we found a way to be happy and to, you know, even when we are faced with tremendous circumstances that, that would destroy anybody, but we found a way to find happiness and to find joy, even in the circumstances. So I think it's, it's not different from queer people in Nigeria. And I think we have, whatever normal Nigerians are going through, we triple that. It's what queer, queer Nigerians are going through. And still yet we find a way to find a community. And I think one thing that is so important to queer Nigerians is that our friends, our community, and if you see the young teenagers, and I think that that was me 15 years ago, the safe house, that was me. And mm-hmm. some of my friends that I met those days, are still the ones that are still alive, are still very close friends of mine. And some of them live across the globe. And we found a way to find a community. And that is so precious to us, to who we are. And yes, all of those things, you know, the law, the discrimination, the constant attack, or sometimes the murder. Um, but we find a way to find f- happiness and within mm-hmm. ourselves and w- within, you know, people that, that are around us. I think that's what and, I meant and, by and, that. And, yeah. Yeah. And on top of this, on top of uh, HBO releasing a documentary, uh, you organize Global Black Pride at the end of the same week, essentially. Um, you founded it, co-founded it in 2020, and it's a sort of a virtual global pride across three continents. You had it live streamed on Grinders YouTube. Um, and I really got three questions. One, where the hell do you get your energy and can I have some? Um, and two, it was an incredible event. Um, and you got to get the illustrious Blacks to perform uh, Black Like Jesus, which I think is just a huge achievement. But but it's not a party. Uh, Global Black Pride has a very clear research and advocacy agenda. Can you talk a bit about how all of that fits together? I think, you know, during the, during the height of the pandemic and a lot of prides were cancelled, that was last year, and, you know, we, we thought about, you know, a lot of our community members wouldn't be able to go celebrate Pride. As you know, in, in several countries across the globe where they celebrate Pride, they also have Black Pride. Uh, so we thought about, you know, we had this global Pride that was hosted by Interpride, which is great and amazing. But we felt like, you know, that was mostly white people and it was great and people participated. But we thought, you know, we weren't the, the Pride that were canceled across the globe that were led by Black organizations and black, you know, uh, individuals 
didn't have a space. So we created Global Black Pride and invited all of the Pride organizers who, who, who organized Black Pride across the globe to come and let's do, <laughs> which is crazy idea ever, 11-hour <laughs> long <laughs> events across all of the continents. And, you know, it was crazy to plan. We had less than four weeks to plan it. That was last year. And it was great. We put it together. And we're like, this year, we thought it's, it's, it's more than just a space now. We want to build the space and take it on. And it's crazy that we did not have a global black pride before, um, before we did it that. It is because- absolutely crazy. But I yeah. will say, you, you really utilized um, the technical uh, opportunities that COVID-19 has thrown at us. I mean, it was incredibly well put together. Thank you. We had, you know, again, this, not to take all of the credits, we had, um, like, you know, host committees across all the continents. We had individuals who walked through their countries in all of the continents and to plan their four-hour segments. So each continent had a four-hour block to plan their segments. And what I did was, and my team in, in New York did, was just to work with them to coordinate to make sure the content was strong enough uh, to, 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 to relay in a global stage. So can we talk a bit about Nigeria and the state of HIV in, the Ni- in Nigeria? I, um, I, I made the big mistake um, and infuriated myself by looking at the UNAIDS country data on HIV. And it's, it's a reminder to me that a multitude of statistics can hide the reality. Um, and you know, the government obviously says it has a very low uh, rate of 1.4%. But you know, given the size of the, the population, it's what around... 211 million, um, the number of people living with HIV could be anywhere between 1.3 million and 2.4 million. And there were some odd data points about saying that the uh, men who have sex with men who are HIV, HIV positive, you know, a barely 11% of them were on access to treatment. This reveals to me an epidemic that is targeting disproportionately vulnerable and marginalized communities. What's really going on there? You know, I um, have had my issues with the UNS data, especially the, the you know, yearly reports. And I think that the, the, the focus on leaving no one behind is like, you know, we are, we, we are not even on the, on the train or on the car that, that is not leaving us behind. So like the train is long gone and, you know, like, you know, gay Nigerians and, you know, young women in Nigeria are not even in the, on that train. So I think just going back to the film a little bit, I think when Timmy said we are not seen, people don't see us, like queer Nigerians in the HIV response are not seen. And so much of them are not seen, are not part of the, of the government-led responses. So it's hard to, you know, the data that UNS has or that the government has, it's adequate, inadequate, completely inadequate. Like the, the, you know, the size estimates in Nigeria is absolutely wrong for queer people, for, for MSM and, and TG and injection drug users, for instance. The size estimate is not right. But again, not to take away the, the things that, you know, PEPFAR and CDC and, and, and a lot of the NGO, INGOs in Nigeria, the work they are doing, because I think they are doing the great job in given the circumstances they have to work in. Um, so they, I think, you know, they've been a long capacity building for queer-led organizations in Nigeria, around HIV response. I think at mm. this point, I think we need the transformation because we, 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 don't want to, we don't want capacity to be anymore. We want those organizations to, to do the tracking, to be the implementers. Because right now what we are seeing is that people are losing access or they are, they, they, they are losing track of the people who should be targeted. 
And that's why the, the, the data is wrong because there are some people who are not even counted, who are yeah. quote unquote hard to reach. So again, like absolutely, you know, people were still dying of HIV in Nigeria up until today. People are not found and they died. And then, you know, they don't, we, we have no idea why they died, but we can see through the symptoms that why this is why this person died. And it's still happening today. So I think, you know, there's a long way to go. And I, I know, you know, there are a lot of investment that's been made to, in the Nigerian AIDS response ac- across the years. But I think right now, not even in Nigeria, we need a specific focus on key populations and young women. And I think we need a specific target and focus on them and, and make sure they are the one leading the response. They are the one leading, not just inviting us to the table. We want to be in charge of the meeting. We want to call yeah. the meetings and we want to come and participate. That's where we are. Yeah. yeah. I think that's right. Um, I, I, I think in a way we should be looking to you to organize the meetings. You decide the experts with the help of UNAIDS who can help inform how you answer questions. Um, but these are essentially technical people with technical yeah. skills and they need to be brought to support you, not the other way around. There's something very funny happening, particularly out here on the West Coast, and it's a, a meme called Decolonizing Global Health. And um, I, I just want, <laughs> there's a smile there. <laughs> and, and I just wondered, does that have any resonance for you? And, and what would it really look like, do you think? You know, yeah, it's 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 a very you know. I think in some ways it's straightforward question and with a straightforward answer. Um, but I do feel like you know, for just going back to PEPFEF a little bit, where last two years or three years they've tried to push sixty percent of funding has to be to you know community based and community led organizations in the continent where the responses is are. But I think in that sense, you know, decolonizing. It's a term that is great for what it is, but I think there are people who will be left behind because there are people who, when this would decolonize global health and, you know, give back the, the response and give back leadership to these countries and to this government, who are, again, just because of my own view, who are historically homophobic and do not follow science, communities will be left behind. So again, why I completely as agreed to the fact that we need to decolonize global health and make sure, you know, you know, and make sure people in the continent and the countries where the response is, where the, the, we have the most uh, epidemics focused on, have them lead the response. But at, at the same way, who are those people? What are, their, what are their values? And I would say people tell me, well, you know, part of the colonizing is like giving, making people in charge and making, respecting their values and respecting their culture. But what if that culture and those values doesn't make people like me exist? Mm. Um, so it's it, mm-hmm. again we, we when we use those terms and when we, you know again I'm okay with using those terms but actually structurally if you're going to fund and focus on it you have to make sure you have the right people in place and you have to have to make sure you have some strong lines that we will not cross this line and we we'll have to make sure again that's why people need to be part of those conversations another yeah. term is that that is going around right now is like you know you know uh, global health security which in yeah. tone is like a very confusing and had its own, you know, uh, you know, issues that they want, they want to go into. But I think all of these things I'm throwing around is like, we need to make sure we are not just throwing this around for the training around sake. Like COVID response, I've taught us a lot of things that we should be learning from right now. And like, you know, there are people who have been left behind, like even to give the government, 
in the power. This is how they're going to do certain things. Like in South Africa, a lot of countries whereby they've been laws to discriminate against queer people because they cause COVID. Yes. Yes. You know. I think in many ways, the, the uh, decolonization debate sort of happens in very white university research settings. And um, I think it's absolutely right to say that there shouldn't just be white people sitting around the table mm-hmm. making decisions. But we've come so far in the North where we wouldn't dream of just leaving, you know, saying police chiefs and church leaders are the ones that sit around the con- sit around the table to discuss the needs of marginalized populations in in Oakland or San Francisco. Um, we need the communities there. They need to tell us. And I think the same Honestly, it's the letting go of responsibility and accountability and and having trust. But one of the other things, Michael, that really, really, really disturbs me is taking this phrase, decolonizing uh, global public health, it seems even really more offensive given our failure to ensure COVID vaccine distribution in Africa. And, you know, and again, looking at Nigeria, there are 2.5 million people fully vaccinated. That means that just under 99% of the population are not. And, you know, for me, I've had a career in global health. Uh, I'm, I'm at a crisis point. I genuinely am at a loss at how we how we got into this level of inequity, given everything that we was talking about and were committing to. And uh, and I'd sort of almost ask you, what advice would you give me as an advocate? Where, sh- where should I be putting my time and effort? You know, it's, it's really sad to, you know, when you look at the data of how we are COVID vaccines have been given, who is taking it, which countries have more of it. And you see in the US, <laughs> we are pushing people and fighting for people to get vaccinated, begging, literally. And then we have animals not being vaccinated here. Yeah. Um, and in, in a lot of countries across the globe, in Africa, we have less than 1% of the population in Nigeria who have been vaccinated. Um, and it's not because people don't want to, it's just because people have no access. And it takes me back to the ages of HIV when, we, when ACT came out and who have access to ACT was white cis, cisgender men who could, who could afford it, that could get it then. And people cannot afford it, have to die because they can't get it. Or we have to wait for them to die to come pick their ACT off to give to us to take it. So it's like, it's, all, it's HIV response all over again. And I think yeah. in my view, it's like, you know, I, I just ask people to, as a government, put your money where your mouth is, right? It's one thing to be putting a statement to say, hey, we're going to ask Gavi to give our 10 million vaccines to, to A, B, and C country. Um, put your money where your mouth is. Like, let us, how, how are we able to track, you know, again, that vaccines are getting where they need to be at? Um, asking your government to, you know, to, to show the data, you know, what they're supporting, which country they're supporting. It's one way. I believe in data. Like, show me the data. Show me what you're, what you're funding now, which country is getting vaccinated. And, you know, what is your priority to others who are not? Um, sending vaccine to Canada or to the UK, they can, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but they can afford it. But countries where, you know, they, you, you, they can only afford such things and they have no access to it. Yeah. 
Um, so again, yeah. that's what I would say. Like just asking your government to put your money where their mouth is. Yeah. On a on a much more positive note, Michael, I, you are really a living proof of the the symbiosis of human rights advocacy and global health. Um, and, and by that, I mean that y- you are able to channel the power of hope uh, and perseverance um, to overcome challenge and hardship. And I, I've always been wanting to ask you what you feel in your heart would be a truly effective global health strategy, one that, where the global health architecture supports people rather than supports careers of diplomats. And and how what does success look like for you where we have a global health strategy that lifts up everyone rather than those with influence and accident of geography? You know, I before I answer that question, just want to say, you know, I've had uh, the privilege of working at AVAC for the last seven years. And I think AVAC has taught me so much of the things I know today. Um, and I think, you know, if you ask Mitchell this, it would be like, it would tell you people-centered approach. Um, and it would be like, you have to make sure the response is focused on the person and what the person needs are. You are meeting their need, not what the country needs, not what you need, or not what, you know, your data is saying. It's what that person that is in that data, what they need. So I think if, secondly, I would say, you know, there's something I've been pushing for the past two years now, three years, to, to, to be precise. It's like around structural interventions. And I think it's the next thing that, that I think could, could make a tremendous impact in the AIDS response, in global health in general, right? Like, you know, making sure we are not just focusing on the biomedical, that we are looking at the structural. Like, what are the issues that make people not want to go get tested? Are they out of school? You know, are, 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 they, are they not able to feed? Like, do they need... Are they being attacked or are they in jail or do they need a lawyer? Those structural issues that make, make it difficult for people to respond or to get, you know, where they can get tested or, get their, or take their medications is as important as the biomedical. And we don't focus a lot on the structural. And we have done a now, lot in the biomedical. So I think in my view, that's a, that's a, that would be, you know, something I would say would be a success if we can find a way to fund structural interventions in, and not just focus on the biomedical alone. Now, throughout this conversation, we've referred to AVAC, um, and you work there. You've been there a number of years. Can you just tell us a little bit about what AVAC is? It used to be the AIDS Vaccine uh, Access Coalition, but that's not the case anymore. Yeah, AVAC, we're just AVAC. We're a global advocacy (laughs) organization. (laughs) We're based in New York City, and we work across the globe. AVAC is a prevention and treatment focused organizations. We work with advocates across the globe. And, you know, we work, we're in the middle of between like researchers and advocates. So we are an advocacy organization. Uh, we are not a direct service delivery organization. We work with advocates and fund, you know, and be, I would say, uh, a partner with advocates in different countries to, you know, to respond to the issues that affect, you know, that, that, that are part of the response the country. So I think in my view, I have been part of AVAC for the last seven years. And I think, you know, one of the key things that made me join AVAC was PrEP because I thought, you know, yeah. we wanted to make sure we had PrEP access to, to you know, to MSMs and key population in Africa. Um, and I think, you know, AVAC, in my view, has changed. I've done a, a great job in making sure 
key pubs have access to prep in the continent. So to wrap it up, I know we're coming up to the top of the hour. <clears throat> I always ask my guests how they have stayed sane during this crazy period of, of lockdown. Uh, are there any TV series you've binge-watched binge or books that you've read that uh, you would recommend to us? I, I guess an obvious thing is that you've um, made a documentary and not everybody can do that and organized a global pride event. Again, not everyone can do that. But but uh, uh, what has kept you sane? I would say, um, so my partner and I, we have a little golden doodle, Josie. Uh, she's She's adorable. So, you know, just going to DC and seeing her every other weekend has kept me sane. And she is like the most beautiful thing ever. Um, you know, and apart from that, I've been watching recently, actually, re-watching Pose again, um, which is, you know, one of the greatest thing ever made. Um, so a Pose and It's a Scene, the, the HBO movie as well, you know, it's been something I've been watching. Um, and then I read the Obama book, the new one. <laughs> so, yeah. So when I first started doing these podcasts, um, much to the chagrin of my uh, producer and director, Eric Espera, I always wanted to touch in with people on what their favorite Pet Shop Boys song was. And so I really want to re give this rebirth and, and, and start with you, Michael. What is your favorite Pet Shop Boys song? I don't think I know Pet Shop Boys song. Can you... Oh, oh. <laughs> see, this is, and this is what he said, like, Ben, not everyone is going to know that this is a British global sensation. Well, you mentioned It's a Sin. I mean, they yeah. wrote the music to that. West oh. End Girls. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, Michael, this is, this changes everything. <laughs> but hey, I got to say, Going back to The Legend of the Underground, one of the other highlights for me was your T-shirt that said bisexual. <laughs> I love that. And um, I'm going to get in contact with you separately to see how I can get hold of one. Yeah, it was, it was made by one of the fashion designers in the film. He's amazing. Um, I'm sure yeah. you can get it. Oh, it was fabulous. Well, Michael, uh, thank you for everything, everything that you do. Um, I, I honestly don't know that you realize how much of an inspiration you are to Thank you. young people, but also jaded old folks like myself who've Thank been you. in this for way, way too long. So, Michael, you are a shot in the arm. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Well, many thanks again to Michael. And just as a note, that T-shirt I was referring to, it's hashtag B-U-Y sexual, bisexual. Thanks to Eric Espera, our producer and director from Newsdoc Media. And of course, a huge thanks to you. We'd love to know your comments and suggestions on this or other podcasts. You can find us on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. Have a great week and a safe week, everybody.